Morrison a cabinet of one, Labor's new budget and new approach, gig economy reforms ready for delivery, and the good news is about WA's carbon kelp and Queensland's green hydrogen superpower. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me from the harbour city that is Sydney, whose Premier is trying to bring in Howard-era strike breakers, if you can believe it or not, I am talking, of course, with the great and the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon and On, my wife and your friend, Van <laughs> Batham. How are you, Van? You know, it's another day in neoliberal South Wales. What can I say? It does feel a little bit like that, doesn't it? Yeah. I've got to say, though, on the South Wales uh, side of things, Liz Trust, definitely my one of my least favourite British Prime Ministers, uh, made the news today for saying that she wants more countries to be like Britain and pursue trickle-down economics. Well, I found that really fascinating because it wasn't I'm not sure if it was before then or after then. I, I don't have the timestamps, but uh, Joe Biden tweeted that he was so sick of trickle-down economics and he wanted to build an economy uh, that that lifted people up and built out from the middle. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's a nice, interesting clash of uh, views there from the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Well, let's just take a moment to ask ourselves, do we want to emulate Britain, a country now famous for food banks and fuel poverty? Yeah, probably not so much. Probably not so much. No, but, you know, she'll always have her pork markets to keep her warm at night time. Of course, in America, we're seeing a rising tide of unionization. And in fact, even in California now, they have passed legislation that will allow for multi-employer bargaining in fast food. This is such brilliant news. And this is what will allow the economy to build out the middle in the United States is strong unionisation. We know this. When unions are strong, when union density, which is the amount of a workforce that is represented by unions, is high, you get better outcomes. You get better pay. You get better conditions. You get more purchase by the people over the economy. And Biden has been very clear. He is a union man. And this he's I've read articles saying he is the most pro-union president in American history. And, it, and there's a rising tide of unionization in the United States, and he's all for it. He had the guy who organized the Amazon Union, um, the guy who yeah. had been, you know, fired and kicked out and marginalized and forbidden from coming on site and who still ran the ballot, got his old Amazon employment uh, place of employment unionized. Got to have lunch with Biden at the White House. I'm loving it. Absolutely. And, of course, closer to home, there have been a number of industrial issues that have come up. Uh, in fact, people, uh, if you subscribe to the same kind of email lists that I am, you might have uh, heard about in Port Melbourne, down here in Victoria, NALF, I believe that's how it's pronounced, have locked out their CFMU workforce. This is a plasterboard uh, manufacturer, I believe. Um, Locked them out. Uh, Of course, there is uh, Vic Unions and the CFMU through Megaphone are running a fund to help support those workers 
Because, of course, a lockout is essentially the bosses forcing a strike onto workers because they don't want to negotiate anymore. Yeah. Um, of course, there are strikes going on at, uh, I think it's uh, University of New South Wales and University of Newcastle or perhaps Sydney Uni and University of Newcastle. There are a number of universities that are taking strike action today. Um, they're taking strike action because the situation in universities for staff has become untenable, uh, obviously with rampant wage theft throughout the system and the expectation that workers will work more hours than they get paid for. That has been going on in the university sector for a long time and enough is enough and they're striking over it. And, of course, New South Wales Rail, there continues to be action there and that's really remains about safety. We've discussed it a number of times. This dispute has dragged on. And my earlier reference, Van, is, of course, to the fact that Dominic Perrottet met with uh, Corrigan and John Howard, two people who were instrumental in the waterfront disputes of 20 years ago. Which they lost. Exactly right, which they lost, but who fundamentally are, you know, about union busting and about breaking worker power uh, Perrottet was spotted uh, at a cafe having coffee with these people. It goes some way to giving us a sense of what Perrottet's priorities are. It's not well, the safety not, of trains. Well, they're not safety on trains and they're not the rights of workers to organise and they're not an economy where working people have a say in economic prioritisation and direction. You know, the the only people who ever try to bust unions are people who fundamentally do not believe in equality or the dynamics of negotiation. It's a pretty big dead giveaway that someone is not a good person and not legislating in the interest of all when they try and stop unions from making worker demands. Spoiler alert. Absolutely. And of course, if you're listening to The Week on Wednesday and you're not already a member of your union, you can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W for The Week on Wednesday. You can join up right now. There will still be another 50 minutes of this podcast for you to listen to. You can get the form done. I'm reliably informed before this podcast ends. So get your membership form done, get it in, because of course, fan. We know, as you've said, better pay, better conditions, safer workplaces, and right across the country, there are so many issues that are being dealt with. And we will talk a bit about the gig economy today uh, because we know that when workers don't have power, there is exploitation in the workplace. And in fact, we know that that flows through into our political system. When working people are disempowered from politics, uh, when they're not uh, given transparency, when there isn't accountability of our political leaders, we end up with some bizarre situations. And Van here, of course, I'm talking about the the revelations that have come out in the newspaper that you write for today, The Guardian, about Scott Morrison and his cabinet of one. Oh, yeah. Well, flowing on from the Scott Morrison Minister for Everything story, where we found out that he had secretly had himself appointed health minister and finance minister and treasurer and was it home affairs as well? Like he he took a a number of portfolios. Um, We have now found out that Scott Morrison gave himself cabinet powers, meaning that he had the authority to deem what was a cabinet meeting 
and therefore, and this is the really ugly part, have the protection of cabinet confidentiality, meaning that he could deem that discussions that he had in the room that he was in, um, if it was a cabinet meeting, that means there didn't need to be any transparency before the people of what had taken place and what issues had been discussed there. So this is quite a remarkable situation. He set up something called the Cabinet Office Policy Committee. He was the only standing member of the committee, which, as you say, meant that he could essentially decree a a meeting of that committee at any time, wherever he was. Uh, It has apparently, between July 2019 and April 2022, which was, of course, basically the entire second term of the Morrison government, it met 739 times, 739 times. There are minutes, apparently multiple sets of minutes that were taken at various meetings, uh, but confident uh, cabinet confidentiality means that the minutes can be suppressed for up to 20 years beyond in some cases. It is absolutely shocking. I mean, it. well, it shouldn't – it's not shocking and it should be, I think is the point. I mean, it's a surprising revelation just how deep the rot of the Morrison government went, but also we are aware of the fact that it was a rotten government, that whatever Morrison was doing had very little to do with democracy. And I think we have to take a moment, Australia, to just appreciate that we have for the past few years – been living with the world's like literally most incompetent tyranny. Like Scott Morrison had these unprecedented ministerial powers. He had concentrated power unto himself. He was literally running a shadow government from within the government, which is a new one. Like a shadow government is supposed to exist outside the government, at least in Hollywood thrillers. That's how it's supposed to work in conspiracy theories, I guess. And he had all these levels of uh, protection and confidentiality ascribed to this secret cabinet process that he created. And yet he, what did he do? Like what did he do with all the powers he gave himself? We should all be extremely relieved that Scott Morrison was so incompetent, so hopeless, so bereft of ideas, so absolutely intellectually exhausted before he even took on these powers in this role, that he had nothing to contribute to the abuses of power that he was pursuing. It is literally amazing. Like it, it is just absolutely incredible to think that he concentrated so much power in himself and yet couldn't think up anything to really do with it. One of the details that's interesting in the Paul Carp article from The Guardian is the mention that he was looking for policy ideas. Yeah. That the policy process has complete, obviously completely collapsed in the Liberal Party, that they didn't really have policy responses to things. They didn't really have an agenda. I mean, they had an agenda, you know, more broadly ideologically to concentrate power amongst the few, give business whatever they wanted, but there were no more ideas in the tank that sort of, done everything that they'd ever wanted and literally part of this process was to try and come up with ideas. I'm wondering if the 
children should drive forklifts, which is apparently a brain fart from some business lobby. I'm wondering if that was part of this particular process of essentially secretly crowdsourcing policy ideas from vested interests and Liberal Party stakeholders. It is unprecedented and it is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this term with full heft, completely insane. Well, absolutely, because 739 meetings of this group Apparently, there were presentations from experts, other members of parliament. Morrison claims it was very effective, very effective and allowed deep dives on policy issues. I mean, when you look at the policies that have come out of the Morrison government during its time in office, the idea that somehow or another you would classify it as very effective, any component of it to be very effective, let alone something that met so often and seems to have generated such little of tangible value for ordinary everyday Australians. I mean, the big big policy concepts that really came through in in the Morrison government, obviously there was the stage two tax cuts, which is an ideological thing, which they did early on. Uh, There was JobKeeper, which was a sort of hatchet, a job on what was a proposal from the Australian Union movement originally. Uh, there was paid pandemic leave, which again was given to them uh, from from the union movement. I mean, none of the none of the kind of big policy ideas that I can think of that occurred during the Morrison era could have come out of this. I mean, it, it does sound like it's the sort of place where those bizarre, let's have children drive forklifts, um, ideas came from. Like it's a it's a really strange one. But it also talks to culture too, Van, doesn't it? Like the culture of secrecy, the culture of disengagement, of, of keeping the people out of decision-making processes uh, and, and viewing it as their right to, to make the decisions that would impact us all, even if they didn't really have – anything constructive to do. It is just, it's just amazing. I mean, thank God it's over. Thank absolute God that it's over. But, you know, the thing that is terrifying about this, and this is the point that um, that has been made by Albanese, I think, responding to this, is that we have to make sure that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. And Rex Patrick has said this as well. He's the former Centre Alliance um, Senator from South Australia, who is one of the reasons why a lot of this stuff has come about, because he was pursuing FOIs and it has big, been big on the transparency um, train. Just going, if it could happen with Morrison, like it could, it could happen with someone who did have like a completely nefarious agenda that could abuse all of these processes and think of something to do with that power. And that's genuinely terrifying. Like, it's good, it's excellent. This stuff has come to light, and I congratulate transparency campaigners and journalists like Paul Carp and the others who have shone a light on this story. Because, you know, these old conventions around how democracy is supposed to function, and you know what leadership consists of, and what's appropriate, and you know the systems of checks and balances, we're realizing a lot of those just exist in terms of goodwill, that if you had positions of power, you respected the authority of office and you, you subjected yourself to the the conditions of that office. 
But what we're seeing in the West now, and we're seeing this in Australia as much as we are in America or Britain or anywhere else, is goodwill systems are breaking down because political opportunists are getting their hands on the levers of power and then relying on propaganda infrastructure to hide, obscure, excuse, forgive everything they do. So it's important to look at what we have to do with democracies to tighten up our transparency and to tighten up our accountability mechanisms so they do apply. So you don't have a system of Scott Morrison, secret dictator, uh, Donald Trump, I steal uh, nuclear secrets and stash them in the pool room at my hotel, Boris, I lied to the Queen to prorogue Parliament, and all of this other nonsense that has been going on. You know, it's time for a period of reckoning in the West about what parts of our systems need actual address in order to protect the, the democracies we created that people fought and died for. And Van, I think it's also at this point worth mentioning that this is not just uh, something that's limited to the political sphere. We're seeing culturally uh, more of, uh, I guess, the the bad behaviour, the terrible leadership uh, of of individuals and and uh, systems that I guess relied on trust and belief. Uh, fail us. And of course, I'm referring here to the story that's come out today about the Hawthorne Football Club, uh, the AFL Football Club, and people should read that um, that piece in the ABC. I don't propose that you and I spend a lot of time talking about this today, but I do think in the context of a broader discussion about convention uh, and trust and systems and accountability, um, that piece is it's a devastating raid, and certainly, uh, you know, when you think about the the trust that people who are in a vulnerable position, people who are employees, junior employees in their dream job, uh, who have moved into state often, who have placed their faith in a successful, powerful. Uh, person or, or group of people uh, who are leading them to to on-field victory, uh, who make them believe that their guidance is in their interest. It certainly talks to a kind of cultural phenomenon, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to kind of say they're both it's apples and apples, but I do think. Uh, we need to have more transparency, more accountability for leaders at all levels in our society, and particularly when those leaders have access to uh, and responsibility for uh, people, other people, whether they're particularly vulnerable people or employees or or citizens in in their in their care who rely on them for the provision of services and the implementation of the democracy. So I'd encourage people to read that ABC piece. There'll be a lot more, I'm sure, that will come out about that over the next few days, and we may talk about it more on the weekend wrap. I, would, I will say, just a warning, it's quite um, an emotional uh, thing to read, and it's quite uh, difficult content. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, it's a it's an absolutely shocking story. And I, I also encourage everyone to read the ABC article about it and the way that these individuals and their families, their communities and the sport was treated by just absolutely morally inexcusable behaviour 
it's it's so shocking um and i think it's i think as more details come out there's going to be a national conversation that will be painful and difficult and necessary yeah absolutely talking about national conversations uh labor's approach to the budget you know we've spent a lot of time on the week on wednesday talking about morrison and the the awfulness that was the coalition of course labor is in government now jim chalmers is the treasurer and yesterday he gave us a bit of an update and and look you know it was good news really i mean he kind of framed it in a don't get too excited about this way but the good news is that the budget will be 50 billion dollars better off uh, than was originally anticipated in march and that's in some ways a bit weird because it's mostly due to increased prices for our exports so coal which i know people don't like but iron ore wheat gold, gas, oil, um, these are one-off kind of improvements to the budget, mostly, frankly, in part because of what's going on with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, global instability in supply chains, uh, and underspend. There's around $20 billion of money that was underspent by the Morrison government, 739 secret one-man cabinet meetings, and he still couldn't spend the money he promised to spend. But on things like uh, things like infrastructure, things like ongoing programs that were not funded on an ongoing basis, which is going to create a budget black hole. And that's really where Chalmers uh, and Katie Gallagher, the finance minister, kind of focused their attention yesterday, saying, look, this one-off uh, improvement is a good thing, but there are some real systemic problems here that Morrison basically papered over, funding for the NDIS, for aged care, uh, for defence, that just hasn't been factored in, even though it was announced and promised. Uh, and frankly, you know, the budget that we deliver in October is going to be very bread and butter, and we're going to have to have a national conversation about the structure of the budget and how we do things as a country between sort of then and the next budget, which is of course only in May, so it's a it's a it's going to be a challenging time for Labor, I think, to to bring us through this period where people are feeling a cost of living pressure. There's certainly a lot of insecurity in the labour market, even though unemployment is low. That of course has helped the budget as well, but we've got this weird sense where. The budget is slightly better off, but people don't feel themselves better off. And it's kind of the structure of the way the economy is now geared. We, we, we need to kind of rethink our economic model so that we're not got a situation where the Commonwealth does well when the people are suffering price pressures. Yeah, no, that's, that's not how this should work at all. You know, I mean, and this is this is the problem. Like we've had forty years now of this neoliberal nightmare. We were all promised that we would all be rich, that neoliberalism was going to just deliver this unheard of prosperity because wealth was going to trickle down, and if we made rich people richer, the rest of us would become richer as well. And like forty years later, it hasn't happened. Like it is absolutely. I just can't get over that that the Liz Truss comment about how the rest of the world should be like Britain. Britain is miserable. Yeah. Like the, on the same page, 
of the of webpage of the Guardian today announcing that she'd made these comments were stories running about these terrifying fuel bills in the UK, which are bankrupting families and forcing small businesses to close. York, which is one of my favourite cities in the world, a place where I spend a lot of time, it's like legendary high street area, the shambles, which are all these beautiful cobblestone um, like alleyways and, and buildings full of all these, you know, amazing little shops and and places like they they took a hit in the pandemic and now they're saying that this historic sort of urban center is economically collapsing because they can't afford fuel bills but you know everybody should adopt sort of trickle down economics and we need a, a conversation in this country about what we want our economy to look like and what our priorities should be. And in a way, you know, I mean, it's great to have Labor, in, it's great to have Labor in government compared to the Tories, of course it is. Um, it's great to have Labor in government to be the government that shepherds that conversation away from the neoliberal pillars that built the fragility that we're living in now, the uneven distribution of wealth. You know, we are at a a period of record inequality in in this country. Like things have not been this bad since the Depression in terms of the gap between rich and poor and the absolute concentration of wealth in the richest. And we have to ask ourselves, what, what do we want things to look like? And overwhelmingly, I think Australians defer to the side of progressive economic beliefs. I think Australians are prepared to pay more tax and for the tax burden to be shared more fairly um, in order for us to have infrastructure that enables everybody to have a quality of life and enables every business to have like the quality resources in which to operate. This is something we need to talk about more, that having things like good railway connections and good public transport and clean air and clean water and, you know, an environment that processes carbon, you know, all of these, you know, seaports, airports, hospitals, schools, proper skills training, which is becoming such an issue in this country as well after nine years of coalition neglect, these things are actually really good for business, for all businesses, because it means that businesses are not literally having to invent systems from the ground. It means that there are resources paid by taxation, by like resources created as a symptom of prosperity that can be collectivized and shared and used uh, in order to create more opportunities for people, whether they're in business or public life or in, or when I mean public life in this context, I mean the way that we live as a public, as a polis, as a people, like that this is really important. And it is, it's really frustrating to think that we're in this ridiculous conversation where you know, these the assumptions of 40 years ago that neoliberalism was going to deliver all this prosperity by flattening taxation rates and by, you know, privatising everything and, you know, deregulating markets and outsourcing government jobs. It hasn't worked. Like the prosperity is not there. It's a prosperity for few, for a few at the expense of everyone else. And I, and I think that's really the the point now isn't it because fundamentally we can see that the the model hasn't worked you know we were promised when unemployment was low wages would go up well unemployment is at record lows and wages are being cut we were promised that as our population got more skilled and more educated 
we would get greater shares uh, of our productivity. That if we increased our, that would increase our productivity, and we would get a greater share of it. Well, our productivity is at record highs, but our wages have been cut and profits have gone up. So there is a power dynamic here, and I think what's really interesting about this is that there starts to be, at least in this country and seemingly in the United States now as well, an understanding and recognition of that power dynamic that that the ideology of trickle-down economics, which Liz Truss wants to revert to or, or re-embrace and double down on whatever language you want to use in the UK, it, that has failed and, and has, has observably failed. It is not working. So actually having it uh, a conversation about multi-employer bargaining in different sectors. Having, uh, you know, today, I, I, I want to note that today the Women's Economic Equality Task Force had its first meeting. And this is a task force with business, unions, academia, community groups, and the government coming together to go, what can we do to lift the economic equality for women in this country? I mean that that's a huge step forward. That's a that's a tripartite, multi-party um, approach to dealing with the challenges that we have inherited be, because of trickle-down economics. Yeah, there are, there are consultations on the gig economy. We'll talk more about that later. But you know, you raised the point that you know Jason Clare. Um, is the education minister, and he's actually going to public schools and talking up and talking about public education and why it's important. I can't recall that in my lifetime. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. So Jason Clare, the Federal Minister for Education, released a video either this morning or yesterday, I shared it this morning, of him going to Canley Vale High School, which is a state school in New South Wales, where he was a student and, you know, gave acknowledged his public school teachers who helped him get into university and set him on the course of his life and gave this quite inspirational speech to the kids there about do what you love and, you know, find a way to do it and that school will encourage you, you know, to, to leap for whatever you want to seize at. And it was genuinely shocking and there's been a few incidents like this recently because it's just like, wow, the Minister for Education actually engaging with the education sector and talking about values and the importance of public education is kind of amazing. Jason Clare, I saw him on Saturday night because he went to opening night of a show that's running at the Sydney Theatre Company at the Opera House in Sydney called Chalkface by Angela Betsian, who's a wonderful, wonderful playwright. And it's about public school teachers um, try – it's a, a crazy fast comedy and it's about public school teachers who are in a public school which is literally falling down around their ears because of all, all these years of chronic underfunding. And Jason Clare was there engaging with the culture, you know, seeing the portfolio he's responsible for and the way that the culture is now responding to what is happening in that policy space. And it was – it was announced that he was there at the drinks after the opening night show and there was an audible gasp from the audience. Like no one could believe that somebody had actually, somebody with the power within the conversation was there to listen to the conversation take place. I had a similar experience in the Sydney Film Festival a few months ago and I was doing like a campaign event for the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance as well as the Australian Writers Guild, the Drexers Guild and the unions who were involved in 
um, the film and television industries are campaigning for Australian content regulations so we can make more film and television in this country mm. and have local jobs for local creators. Imagine. And Tony Burke and Michelle Rowland, the Minister for Arts and the Minister for Communications respectively, turned up and nobody could believe it. Like everybody's so absolutely shocked that people were there wanting to have that conversation. And this is transformative in terms of people's expectations of government, but there's an adjustment period and it makes you realise just how neglected the engines of culture, whether they be the infrastructure of education or the commentary of the arts or, you know, the cultural infrastructure of, of film and television, all of these sectors have been neglected for just so long that people actually working and making and communicating in these systems have been excluded from the conversation about what those systems should look like, how they should be funded, how they could operate, and most importantly, what they have to offer to a vision of Australia, an Australian prosperity, an Australian community. It's really genuinely terrifying that at the same time, to throw back what we were talking about earlier, that all of this power was concentrated in Scott Morrison to not have any policy ideas where you have a country that's essentially governing itself in his wake. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because it's not just in culture. You know, we're seeing this in so many areas. I mean, I was at an event last Friday uh, at Victorian Trades Hall where Jenny McAllister, the Assistant Minister for climate change and Lily D'Ambrosio, the Victorian Minister for Climate Change and Energy, spoke to a room full of activists from the union movement, from the environment movement, from the community about climate. You know, we've seen uh, we've seen Chris Bowen talking up and po- posing with electric vehicle utes. You know, oh, EV it's utes. hilarious. Because um, was it Susan Lay or Michaela Cash? I, I do struggle to tell some of the yeah, other yeah. books apart. Was insisting there was no such thing as an electric ute. Well, there he is, Chris Bowen, Minister for Climate Change, who drives, I can say, very nice Tesla, um, posing with an electric ute. And anybody who hasn't been in an electric vehicle, I've said this before, I'll say it again, once you've been in an electric vehicle, you know you are dealing with a premier motoring experience, I've got to say. Well, the, 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 pre- the pressure's on in our household, I suppose, for our next for our next car. But, you know, I, I do want to point out because it's not it, – it, it is a cultural shift in governance. You know, Katie Gallagher is the finance minister talking about having an open and honest budget process. Bill Shorten yesterday announcing reforms to the way the NDIS appeals system works so that fewer people have to go into the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and actually putting, I think it's Graeme Innes, in charge of that process. These yeah, are- who's an excellent pick. I can't think of anybody who would command more respect for his independence and, and expertise in the sector. You know, these are these are genuine commitments. You know, we saw it early on and I think I think we sort of saw the flurry early on where Penny Wong kind of went to visit our near neighbors and you know in at the UN as we speak. Uh, and we kind of thought that, oh, that's the early flurry. But it's continued on. This is a government that is seeking to engage people, stakeholders. You know, this review of how uh, employment works is, you know, so critical now. We had the Jobs and Skills Summit where you had union leaders and business leaders who, who you know, in some cases are in the midst of quite 
heated debates and and disputes about the workplace conditions in in the companies where they're having a dispute step away from that and go okay at a macro level what can we be doing what can we be doing to lift skills you know things like women's econ- economic equality we need a task force on that things like the gig economy we need to have rounds of consultation and engagement on that but clearly there needs to be reform i mean this is this is a different approach uh, you know we're still a democracy but in fact we're probably more democratic than we were for the last decade. Oh, look, absolutely, especially given the fact that the country was being run by one guy and nobody knew. <laughs> I want to say too, one of the things that really struck me, there was a piece I think in the New Daily, um, you know, where it talked about the Expenditure Review Committee. And this is this is a committee that gets a bad rap, right? The Expenditure Review Committee is always a committee that's going to get a bad rap because it's their job to review the expenditure of government and go, do we really need to spend that money or not? Now, under Morrison, this was a very small group of people, unsurprisingly, a very small group of people. Labor has made this a nine-person committee. Uh, it's more than double the size of the committee. And, of course, they're going through the budget line by line in the lead up to the October budget. And it's already done some, what I think, quite good things, like got rid of that leadership program Morrison promised the Governor-General, um, that $18 million worth. They're apparently con- you know, considering things like the Beetaloo Basin uh, subsidy, the $1.9 billion subsidy there, reviewing uh, Peter Dutton's decision to enter into a billion-dollar drone contract with the same company that's providing the same drones to those paragons of democratic value, Russia, China, and Myanmar. Yeah, I don't think we should be buying things from them. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would like this committee process to get to a point where it does deal with things like the uh, flattening of our tax uh, rates and the disproportionate uh, tax cuts that are going to go to high-income earners. We'll wait and see what happens, but I think it's a good step to have that process in place to actually go through and look at what's there and whether or not it's legitimate. Like we know so much of the Morrison government's uh, expenditure was not really legitimate. Yeah, well, this was the thing. I mean, we had all of those bizarre grants that were parceled out on like, you know, and all of the rorts as well, sports rorts and, you know, these boondoggles that were consistently funded. It's been interesting um, to hear the National Party squeal about the fact that Labor is like removing some of the, the promised projects that the Nationals were using to sort of plump up their base. And, and Labor has said if it's, if it's worthwhile, like if it's a worthwhile project, of course they'll fund it. But it is absolutely ridiculous in this country that we're being forced to make decisions about whether we can provide quality healthcare or quality education because all of this money has been spent on guff. It is guff. Look, talking about guff, you know, people love the convenience of having things instantly delivered to their homes. And that kind of, I, I I used to think of it as guff, but as the gig economy has continued to grow, it's become less guff and more kind of an anchor or a chain or a, or a weight around the ankle of so many working people. 
this is one of the things that Labor is reviewing, right, and is committed to reforming. Uh, and there's been some pretty uh, strong language from uh, Tony Burke, who, as well as being Arts Minister, as you pointed out, is also the Minister for Industrial Relations. It's quite a good match, uh, quite a good match. But, you know, he has said, and I want to I use the quote because I think it's a really, really good one. Gig work drives down wages and it has been spreading like a cancer through the economy. It is now extending into the care economy, into aged care and the NDIS and into industries like security. You know, this is a, this is a fundamental challenge to the concept of employment and what it means to be a worker and the protections that workers have. And there's a piece in the ABC uh, that got a good run, both written and uh, on radio and in the news, and I think it's going to be, um, uh, I think it was on ABC Business as well, talking about how basically the previous government just let it rip. In fact, uh, a professor from UTS Business School said, we basically just let it rip. Uh, and that's now created these huge problems not just in things like food delivery, but also the NDIS, aged care, uh, and other parts of the economy that has to be dealt with. Well, yeah, it does have to be dealt with because we know, I mean, we know that um, workplace conditions have been absolutely shocking with some of the platform providers. And again and again, we're seeing revelations from the NDIS about the appalling treatment of workers within that system. Um, we know that there have been uh, delivery drivers at some of the platform services who have been killed at work doing their jobs and, you know, with this plausible deniability of these companies who claim they're not really employers, they're just a notice board, you know, this kind of ridiculous defence that the platform providers put up for themselves. And yet the, the idea that this has been able to let rip, I'm always reminded of something that um, was said in the is when repeat is repeatedly said in the United States whenever the subject of minimum wages comes up that anybody who's campaigning against minimum wages is somebody who would pay you absolutely nothing if they thought they could get away with it and what we've seen again and again since the platforms came to Australia with no regulation and these sort of cowboy digital enterprises is that workers get absolutely screwed like and it becomes a a, a, a race to the bottom in terms of you know, with it, what people are, are paid um, for volunteering their labour and offering their labour within the context of platform provision, you know, and this idea that a competition is introduced for opportunities to work where you have people who drive down their wages to outcompete one another. There are supposed to be flaws and ceilings in the way that wages are paid and the way that um, people are enabled to have a fair slice of the pie and to be remunerated fairly for the work that they do. And, of course, this wasn't a thing, you know, the, the, the platforms and their business model is not based on fairness or flaws or protections or minimum standards. It's based on this race to the bottom. Ben, you always tell an interesting story about Uber and its profit model. Well, I mean, Uber, <laughs> Uber has no profit, right? So Uber, Uber is basically just trying to break the the market. Um, I think you know it's interesting to to note that 
you know, Michael Caine from the Transport Workers Union makes the point that, you know, it's directly putting workers in competition with each other, um, that it's insecure work. Sally McManus, the leader of the trade union movement in Australia, says that it provides workers with little social and economic security and little control over their working lives. You know, and that's really how many of the platforms are, are built. They're structured around this sort of concept that you'll you'll simply have to take with a market price. But I think it's also interesting to note that it doesn't have to be like that, right? Like these are these are old-fashioned ways of structuring employment relations simply using new technology. You know, the 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 idea of getting workers to undercut each other and underbid each other's wages has been something bosses have been doing since the Industrial Revolution, um, whether it's lining up at the factory gate and the boss picking whoever was prepared to pay for a shift, uh, you know, or whether it's using a platform to have people bid against each other uh, to to pick the lowest price. That's not none of that's new. I mean, one of the interesting things in the ABC piece this week was one of the quotes from the CEO of HireUp, which, of course, people know I've done some work with um, before. But, you know, Jordan O'Reilly from HireUp says, without changes, without a real hard look at the growth of the gig economy across all sectors, I think we're going to lose something that we really treasure here in Australia, which is the rights and entitlements and protections for workers. And, of course, HireUp does employ people. Like, that's a platform, but it employs people. Could it do better? I'm sure it can. I'm sure it will over time. But in a situation where you've got the Uber model just smashing up whole sectors, forcing workers to compete on price, then you're going to have – it's going to be really difficult for those who are trying to do the right thing. And not just platform providers, by the way. You know, if you're, if you're, in a, if you're a transport company who finds themselves – with Amazon Flex coming at you with lower cost because workers have been had their wages smashed and you've got a workforce that you're engaged properly and paying properly, paying to the award or even negotiating uh, agreement standards with, that's really hard to sustain. So the Uber model is to smash up whole sectors of our economy, whether it's in transport, whether it's in uh, food, whether it's in aged care, whether it's the NDIS, whatever it might be, the idea is to smash the pre-existing conditions and essentially derive profit from the workers. And and that's what we're seeing happen. Yeah, what people don't understand, like, oh, why would Uber do that? Why would they want to smash up the sector? Because once they've driven everybody else out of business, everyone, that means they can charge what they like. So what you what you pay now, and we've seen this in terms of the history, the horrible history of privatisation everywhere where it's happened is that there's this promise that, you know, commercial enterprise will take over this service and it'll be run by market forces and respond to consumers and it will be just so efficient and it'll drive down prices and there'll be market competition. Let's give you an example of Qantas, a favourite <laughs> discussion between Ben and I, given the fact that 
because of the situation with my mother, we've been having to, you know, travel constantly living in different states. And obviously we travel a lot for our jobs. And uh, I would love to spend more time with Ben. I'm a huge Ben fan. Ben, I just want to put on the record that I'm into you and I would really, really like us to spend more time together. But we found out yesterday that we could not get a flight, not just from Qantas, but from anyone, from Melbourne to Sydney, one of the most trafficked routes in the world, one of the busiest air corridors in the world for you to come and see me, your legal wife, um, and spend some time with my mother and, and the family here. Um, for in two weeks' time, you could not get a ticket for, tell everybody what they wanted a ticket for. $1,200. Yep, Sydney to Melbourne. I've paid $1,200 to fly to freaking New York from Sydney. I've paid $1,200 to go to Milan and London. The idea that Sydney to Melbourne is a $1,200 route and this was, oh, yeah, we'll privatise Qantas, it'll be great. Alan Joyce, by the way, what is it, an $8.7 million package he's being offered? Yeah, absolutely. And, look, there's there's some – um, really interesting articles that come out today, again on the ABC, I think even in the Herald Sun, talking about how, you know, in Europe and the US, they've moved to compensate flyers who are, you know, who who miss flights because a flight is delayed, flights are cancelled. Like every single time we have a conversation with anyone, particularly about Qantas at the moment, it's a conversation where there's a high price, uh, flights are delayed, uh, flights are cancelled. We've now got the phenomenon of people being bumped off flights too. I've heard stories of that. And some of the conversation from people like Choice, for example, is that consumers should be compensated. And actually, people like Alan Joy shouldn't be getting $8 million plus salary packages. They, they should be penalized. And in fact, the compensation should probably come out of the management's remuneration for these kinds of management failures, because that's what they are. They're management failures. But it just goes to show, like, and this is what happens when you smash up a system. When, when government is... It either withdraws or is pushed out of um, or abrogates its responsibility to regulate markets, markets go crazy. And this is the thing, you know, like Ben wasn't going to pay $1,200 to fly Qantas and lose his luggage on the way to Sydney to come and see me, but tickets on Virgin were just as much. Yeah. You know, all of the options were priced the same way. Jetstar was the same. And this is the thing, like if you're a capitalist and you're – motive is profit and no one is actually telling you what your limits are, there are no limits. You will charge $1,200 freaking dollars to go from Melbourne to Sydney. I should point out that's a return flight. Like I don't want anyone to think that we're $1,200 one way. Although the other day when I was looking at flights to get down to see Ben, there were options, I'm not joking, from Sydney to Melbourne that were around $3,000 were listed on the site. And it was like, really, we've come to this. We've actually come to this, it's, that we're just opening that window a little bit more, a little bit more to get people used to the idea that things are ridiculous. Well, you know, I think it's really good that the Labor government federally is stepping into the space about regulating the gig economy. Uh, certainly, I think there'll be growing pressure on the airlines as well. You know, these are these are things that, you know, Morrison gave Qantas $2 billion, no strings attached. I mean, that was madness, absolute madness. You know, we did let the gig economy rip for a decade. I wonder who was part of that cabinet decision. 
you know, these are these are problems that have been a decade in or more in the creation, and they will take time to fix. But the steps that are required, the consultation, the engagement, bringing workers into the conversation, we should remember that that $1,200 return flight to Sydney is not flowing through to higher wages for the workers. No, in fact, they Qantas sacked their workers. Continues to have unlawfully sacked their workers, continues to defend their unlawful behaviour towards their workers. And it's the same with the gig economy. You know, when you get those surge prices, when prices go up, very rarely is that money passed directly onto the worker. There's either some kind of fee increase or an administrative cost or a payday loan in some cases that has to be paid off. These are these are systems that are designed to extract profit from working people, either as consumers, as workers, or as taxpayers in the form of subsidies, as we saw under Scott Morrison. So it's a there's a lot to be fixed, and and I take Jim Chalmers's point. This is not all going to be fixed, you know, in the first 200 days of a Labor government. It's not going to be fixed in the first year. It's going to take time, but we have to keep engaging and participating. And when I see things like the Women's Equality Economic Task Force and and the the breadth and depth that is on that. The fact that Natalie James is the secretary for the Department of Workplace Relations and the consultations that are going on there, you, you start to go, actually, you know, and, and the fact that the government is supportive of equal pay in aged care and childcare, you start to go, we might, we might, we might get this under control. Ben, we have to talk about some good news because there's a couple of good news stories. And they're from two of our great states that you and I don't get to spend enough time in. Although I was in Queensland recently, but I haven't been. I've actually never been to WA. It's a secret confession time. This is outrageous because I love WA, and as you know, I have I've had a wonderful relationship with the Black Swan State Theatre Company of WA and done shows there. And so I've spent lots of time there, and it's beautiful and really nice. And a big shout out to our listeners in WA. Um, But the good news in WA, Ben took great pleasure in informing me of this, and you can explain why I give you permission. So you and I, we had the great um, uh, privilege of being at the Paris Climate Conference. And Greg Hunt, people might remember Greg Hunt uh, for many- Weeks he a long was time at, in politics, Greg. Yeah. He was at the time environment, I think it was environment minister. I don't think they called it climate change minister back then. But he I mean that'd be acknowledging that it existed and wow, kind his of big solution that he was offering up at the Paris Climate Conference was seagrass. Seagrass would act as a big carbon sink. Uh, and he was going to dump iron filings. I remember this very clearly. More iron filings into rivers to create more seagrass and mangroves, and that would no, no, the I, no, they were getting rid of. You're, you're messing it up, Ben. So the future was seagrass. We were told by Greg Hunt they didn't actually have any plans to do anything about it, but they'd heard that it'd be really good, and also that they were looking at algae. And somebody made the point that you've got to dump iron filings in rivers to get it to produce the kind of algae that processes ah, right. um, carbon. And that wasn't really addressed. And then some, like, eager young person who obviously hadn't read what, you know, the minister was conveying, i.e. they weren't planning on doing anything, was like, oh, if you're talking about, you know, natural carbon capture, does that mean you're going to restore the mangroves? Because mangroves are one of the most effective forms of carbon capture. And Greg Hunt was like, no. (laughs) And we were like, we're all going to die in a ball of fire. As it turns out... 
as it turns out, off the coast of Western Australia, and we've talked about this before on the show, we've actually discussed the fact that there is a giant kelp forest off the coast of South Australia near the Great Southern Reef. It's a 5,000-mile stretch of golden kelp. And the great news about the kelp is that unlike the you know non-existent seagrass that Greg Hunt may or may not have been growing in his bathtub at home, this- While he wasn't vast, restoring mangroves, yes. This vast forest of kelp is actually capturing carbon out of the air at a rate of 1.26 tonnes per hectare per year. And let me be really clear about what this means because it means, you know, you go, oh, that's, that sounds good. Is it good? Here's how good it is. It's 30 times faster than trees on land capture carbon. It's also capturing more carbon than the Amazon rainforest. And for those of you who have a bit of a financial bent, which if you've listened this far on this particular episode, I'm guessing is everyone who's still listening, the value of that carbon sequestration value of capturing that carbon is $1.7 billion per year. This is a huge, huge piece of good news. And we need to maintain and continue to grow this. This is this is growing 11 times faster than wheat, corn, or rice. This is actually really, really useful, good stuff. It's going to help. Of course, it's not the only solution to carb, uh, to to carbon emissions. We can't just grow. We can't cover the whole planet in kelp, obviously, but it it absolutely helps, and it's a fantastic piece of good news. But Van, you've got some good news for our comrades in Central Queensland. Uh, yes, and that is a massive, massive investment in green hydrogen. So obviously green hydrogen is um, a better option uh, than coal in terms of a fuel source. And uh, in the very coal lands of Queensland, the very places where, um, you know, the climate wars were fought so brutally with the former Liberal government Mm. insisting that everything had to be mined because we had to, you know, dig it all up or these communities would collapse – a um, Korean company is looking at a um, a Korean company is looking at an investment in those very areas to process and export green hydrogen. So, 20. meaning that a, a better fuel source than the coal that has been dug up there, uh, and the with the uh, you know with comparable in, industrial infrastructure needed, the same kind of investment that's needed to make that happen that a Korean company is investigating um, investment in that. And that is great news. $20 billion worth of investment and it will export a million tonnes of green ammonia to Korea by 2032. Uh, Our our friend uh, Lance McCallum uh, from the Queensland government tweeted about this today as well. Um, It's hugely exciting. The Queensland government has been present at the signing of the Heads of Agreement this is jobs. This is this is emissions reduction. This is the exact kind of thing that the ACTU and the union movement, when it put out its paper about how we create jobs and export industries of the future, 
was talking about. It's talking about investing in these kind of green hydrogen, um, green ammonia, uh, export fuels because it will require rail and it will require infrastructure and it will be jobs. Fantastic news, fantastic environmental news. And it's always good to end the show uh, on that kind of a note because, of course, Van, there's also uh, something else we need to remind people of and that is to buy your tickets to come to the week on Wednesday live. Ben and I are very excited about doing the week on Wednesday live at Melbourne Fringe, which we're doing on the 12th of October, which is a Wednesday, and it'll be recorded to be our episode for that week. Um, I am going to be wearing a fabulous outfit. I've already got mine picked, and I'm really excited about that, so there's so there's that. But Ben and I are going to do a show that involves uh, a lot of live, like it's a live show, but we're going to be using innovative digital content as well. So if you're in the audience, if you have questions, for us, we're going to be trying out all kinds of fun tricks to give you a special live experience. And I want to point out that um, because we know that our listeners come from a diversity of different um, backgrounds, experiences, and economic realities, we have staggered pricing. So we have tickets that start at $15 and go up from there. And obviously, you're welcome to buy a ticket that reflects what you can afford because we want you to come. And if you like the show, if you can get to Melbourne, if it seems like a fun thing to do and you want to see me in a good outfit and play with our whiz-bang digital tricks, um, it's going to be quite fun. We had a great meeting about it today, talking about the uh, way we're going to make it interactive for people, and it's it's going to be exciting. It's going to be great fun, and of course, none of the week on Wednesday would be possible. The the you know top three politics charting and the top twenty news charting and the growing audience every week and all the great comments and stories and things that people send us and you know all of the fantastic work that we get to do wouldn't be possible without the people who support our show of course not everyone can afford to financially support us we do have a buck a week supporter level we do take one-off support um but of course anyone who shares likes comments reviews write a review if you listen to this on apple write a review if you enjoyed the show if you didn't enjoy the show don't write a review don't tell us don't don't do that but if you enjoyed it please give us a good review it helps boost us up and of course our cadre who chip in 20 bucks a month and our extended reach supporters chip in 10 bucks we always like to acknowledge van and i think you've got the list in front of you i do i do and i just want to acknowledge angela fennel who's a support of the show, whose name I have not been pronouncing correctly for several months. Um, I would just like to apologise for getting that wrong. And if uh, if you're a supporter of the show and I'm getting your name wrong, just send me a message. It's seriously no skin off my nose and I'm sorry if I've ever got it wrong. So, Ange, big shout out to you and anybody else whose name I have unintentionally mutilated in this process. All right, are we ready? <sighs> Karina Bali at Jen C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, someone Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona at Evergreen V's. Giotta, Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bronwyn, Punch Drunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascal, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Harriet, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Bresh Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atley Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atley Ann Jingles, Louise Moran, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, at Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Karen Will Robinson, Narissa Simon, at Katagal, Lauren and Ash, Matthew Hadley, at Narangaman, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, at 
red, white, and blue loo, and our Extend the Reach supporters. Stuart Munn, Monkey Mug at Vic Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nihuis, Erica Pizzuti, Claire, Joe Lapino, Steph, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry, Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaas, Angela Fennell, Anna Uren at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jodie A. Not on Twitter, Karen, Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, Vicky Hanna at K. Not Love Your Work at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W, Tanya George, Nandita Hannam, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Weckett, Graham, Oxley, Beck Cody, Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hunnan, at Galvest, Greg Martin, trainer Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah, Ellen, and Andrew Ivers Billet, Andrew Bryan, Peter O.C., Linda Sam Hadid, Kim Patterson, Lizette. Twizzle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, at The Real Never Long Body, Sandy Biomgard, at Not Sandy B, and Renee McGee. That's all we have time for for this episode of the week on Wednesday. Don't forget to join us for the weekend wrap on Sunday afternoon. Uh, don't forget to get your tickets for the week on Wednesday live. Keep checking the social media pages. We, of course, will continue to promote. Van has so many appearances coming up between now and the end of the year. Check out Van's uh, social media at Van Badham on every platform and you will keep up to date with what's going on. I'm at that Van Badham on Facebook. There you go. Until next time, love you, Vanny. I love you. Love you too. Bye. Bye.